0: Every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m., WRFL invites you to Office Hours, real-world conversations with U.K. professors. No appointment necessary. Representing the 16 colleges across campus, Office Hours brings professors from every corner of U.K. to share their adventures in academia. Go beyond the syllabus to learn more about the people behind the research. We'll be demystifying higher education one interview at a time. Stop by every Wednesday afternoon. Office Hours is available online via wrfl.fm or on the
1: airwaves
2: on 88.1 FM radio-free Lexington.
0: Hello and welcome to Office Hours. My name is David Cole, your host. I'm here with board runner extraordinaire Brian connors Makey and two live guests in the studio, Doctors Catherine Rogers-Carpenter and Aaron Koch. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you for coming. Thank you Thank for you. having us. Yeah. We're, we're super excited to have two live guests. This is the first time. This has really happened in quite a while. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll have some fun times. Talk about some great learning stuff. All right. So to get started, uh, I'm going to put the focus on you, Dr. Rogers Carpenter, and talk about your work, but uh, we'll keep it open. Anybody can talk, uh, of course. (laughs) Now, before the show, we looked up some of your uh, publications, and there's a trend in what we found in some of these papers that you've published. Uh, You've done a lot of work regarding women in the 1930s. Uh, Can you tell us about that work?
1: Yeah. Yeah. it, I guess, began when I was very young, my interest in 1930s writing. Both of my grandmothers were born around 1900. They both worked. They went to school, and then they worked. So I knew this, but then when I got a little older, um, I watched shows like Mary Tyler Moore, because that's how old I am. <laughs> and I, so I saw all these shows with working women, and I thought, this seems like it's new, but I know it's not new. So then when I got into graduate school, I, I wanted to see why my grandmothers had worked and I didn't really hear their stories. Mm -hmm. So I started reading, I I had always loved Steinbeck anyway, so I started reading all this literature from the 30s and I found a whole body of books that are about working women. Most people know about Gone with the Wind, some people know um, Imitation of Life, Mm -hmm. that's another story that's sort of been revived. Their eyes were watching God. All of these are stories about women taking care of themselves, sometimes their children, um, but that's the tip of the iceberg. Almost every year from, say, 1920 to 1941, one of these books would be on the bestsellers list, and they're books you've never even heard of. So I found this fascinating.
0: Wow, so you're saying that the focus uh, of what you're looking at here is on the writing aspect specifically, like these books and publications and whatnot. And then
1: the stories, the stories of work and what work is like. Um, obstacles and what those are like, the values that the people in the stories have. Because there has to be a reason why they were so popular and then they stopped being popular. Mm-hmm. There has to be a reason why we've forgotten them. Oh, all right. All
0: yeah. Right. Well, we were doing a little research before. We also looked at your ANS uh, faculty bio. <laughs> and um, it, it mentioned that a specific research interest of yours is visual rhetoric. Yes. I'm curious, what exactly is visual rhetoric for those of us that are, Still trying to gain an education. <laughs>
1: well, so visual rhetoric is something most people are really familiar with. If you've seen an ad that makes an argument mostly through the images that are used, that's visual rhetoric. Anytime you see an image, even in combination with text, um, and it's making some sort of point, that's considered visual rhetoric. So it's really powerful. And I think, you know, even some film you could consider visual rhetoric as well.
0: Are there any specific examples of visual rhetoric that you've studied or researched that you could talk to us about more in depth?
1: Well, yeah, I have. I have, of course, researched the '30s, so I was interested in that rhetoric. And so, if you know what socialist realism is, it's this real, these real blocky figures and almost abstract art from the 1930s mm-hmm. that you often see in magazines and in, um, actually, in Memorial Hall, the fresco. Um, there's a fresco in Memorial Hall. If you go there and look at it, that's this kind of 1930s aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the art that was funded by the WPA, which was a a 30s program to help during the Depression, government program, they funded artists who painted in this style. Mm -hmm. So that's a kind of visual rhetoric I was interested in because it has connections with communist politics, but then it got absorbed by the mainstream. So although it started as sort of a leftist kind of art, it moved its way into mainstream taste. So I think that's very interesting.
0: And you mentioned film um, a second Mm -hmm. ago, and I I just... Wonder if you could talk about that because you know if you're talking about a focus in the 30s, you know That's still very early for the medium of film What kind of changes or um, specifically what kind of interesting things are you finding in film as visual rhetoric in that time period?
1: Well, I mean there are a lot of interesting things that happen Um, What I'm really interested in this is slightly different than the question you're asking me But what I think is really interesting is when you move from a novel to a film Mm -hmm and the mandates that Hollywood placed on people in the thirties as far as censorship goes and what could be seen on the screen and what couldn't. So if you take a story like Fanny Hurst's Imitation of Life and you move it to the screen, there are some relationships that change. Um, African-American people are much more backgrounded in the story once it gets to film than they are in the original. Sometimes some stories are a lot more explicitly sexual and then when they make it to the screen that disappears or it's conveyed in really indirect ways so I would say that's a way to visually depict a different kind of story that's more acceptable to the filmmakers Mm
0: -hmm. That's probably much more interesting than the question I asked so thank you for that Um, Moving forward a little bit over the summer uh, just this past summer you were part of a series of workshops in um, Qingdao? Yeah, that's correct? where they make the beer. Qing, right. Qingdao.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: But uh, at their technological university. Yes. Uh, over in China. Yes, um, yes. Uh, can you tell us, what was that experience like?
1: It was fantastic. It was um, a workshop comprised of 26 mostly science faculty. Mm. So these were professors from physics and engineering, um, one folklorist, landscape design, all these different science people. And my job was to run a workshop on reading and writing in English. So I had a plan. I started with this plan for applied writing, how to write reports, how to write letters in English, how to do emails. And in the middle of the first week of this three-week thing, they said, "Um, do you have proverbs in the United States? (laughs) And I said, well, no, but I can do like quotes. So I started each class after that with a literary quote which they would translate, which they actually liked. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at the end of that week I had presented them with an easy essay, a harder essay, and a Virginia Woolf short story. And and like 10 of these people came up to me after class and said, we want more stories, (laughs) which also never happens in my life, in my classes. (laughs) Um, So I said, okay. And I revamped the whole thing and we read stories the rest of the time. And And it was it was fabulous it was a really yeah. good experience
0: it sounds it sounds great and these workshops were for teaching teachers correct it was yes. for educators mm-hmm. by educators in mm-hmm. a way how did you find yourself getting caught up in this opportunity?
1: It, it just got mentioned to me by a colleague and um, it was actually Beth Connors Mankey mentioned it to me and then I heard from someone in communications who was organizing a team of three people to go and she said would mm-hmm. would you be interested in being our writing and reading person and I said yes so yeah
0: <laughs> Are there any particular like fun memories or adventures that you had outside of that classroom setting that you'd be willing to share with us? Um,
1: yeah uh, there are a lot <laughs> It. I had been to Shanghai before, but Shanghai is almost like, there are places in Shanghai where you feel like you're in New York or Los Angeles. You mm-hmm. could be anywhere in the world. This was really distinctively different in Chinese. Um, to me it felt like a huge city, but for them they called it a second tier city, so I guess it's not as big as the first tier cities. Mm-hmm. Um, what I thought was interesting was all these open-air markets they have everywhere, um, everyday. So you can buy food on the street and clothes and anything you want in these open-air markets. And also, the older people in the evening come out and have different activities. So there was one little park near my hotel where I could see all these elderly ladies dancing together. They did this every night for exercise. I thought it was really cool. Hmm. Um, But they were too much older than me for me to participate. There's like a 60-year dividing line or something. so. Hmm. So I just spectated.
0: Well, that's not something you see every day. That's for sure. No. <laughs> In the past, mm-hmm. uh, there's been talk of you teaching courts about art and epidemics. Yes. And um, you've had some experience with exploring a relationship between rhetoric and disease. Yes. Before research yes. and whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, this is definitely an interesting, if not uncommon, way of looking at health issues. Can yes. you? Tell us how you find creative work to coincide with issues of health.
1: There are a couple of ways that creative work dovetails with health and healthcare providers. The first is more rhetorical. Whenever there's a health crisis or anything big happens to people, usually someone will write about it Mm -hmm. or do a painting of it or respond to it in some way. So if you're interested at all in history and developments in healthcare, one way to chart that is through creative works. And it's fascinating, you can really see differences in attitudes over a trajectory in time. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I'm about to give a talk on cholera in American literature. There were three major cholera epidemics in the 1800s, starting in 1832, 1866, and I think um, 1878, or that's about right. No, 1849 also, so that's four. If you look at the literature, you can see attitudes towards the disease change. Um, People start blaming immigrants early on, but they also view diseases like the divine hand of God. But then over the century, it becomes more a thing that's in the control of the individual and in what they do or don't do. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. So that's one way that you can use creativity to see what's happened to us over time. But the second way is being used in a lot of kind of cutting edge medical schools today, and it's medical humanities where medical schools ask their students to participate in different forms of art like writing poetry, writing plays, um, creating visual art as a way to develop greater empathy for their patients Mm -hmm. so it makes them better providers. I was at a symposium at Penn State's medical school this summer actually and they are rebranding their medical school to include humanities in the title. They have faculty that write poems and and essays, they have a writing cohort that rotates every year of the faculty and they publish their work. Mm -hmm. Um, They have some faculty who are also photographers and they have their photographs all over the hospital. So, I think that's really cool because in a field like that one, it's easy to not ever admit you made a mistake, but then Mm -hmm. you might be haunted by it. If you have an outlet, you can work that out and kind of break the silence and not have that same mistake happen again.
0: That's extremely fascinating. I definitely want to talk about it more. But first, we've got to take a short break. We'll be back. You're listening to Office Hours. My name is David Cole. I'm here with board runner Brian connors making, and our two live guests, doctors Catherine C- Rogers-Carpenter and Aaron Koch. Now, um, right after we went to break, uh, the two of you began discussing a little bit. I'm wondering if maybe we can move that on to air. Okay. Uh, you could just kind of cross the streams a little bit and give us some insight.
2: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was just thinking, just being particularly excited to hear that there's a shift in medical schools towards a medical humanities approach. I think it's really important, not only, Catherine, as you said, for giving people who are being trained to be medical professionals a certain kind of creative outlet, but I think it really humanizes disease, and I think uh, in the context of the American biomedical system, where patients are increasingly seen as treated and treated as consumers as a, of a product rather than as human beings who are living with some sort of illness, that can really kind of transform the doctor-patient interactions. So I just think that that's a really exciting, exciting move.
1: Yeah. It was interesting during this symposium how... Every day, well, everybody went to every session every day, so it's exhausting for a week. But every day, we would begin with something like poetry reading or play or something, and all of them would make everyone in the room cry. And at first, no one was comfortable with that, but by the end, we understood that the art was actually being used to generate emotions, Mm -hmm. so it's very interesting. Mm -hmm.
0: It's definitely very nice that there is this humanizing movement. And uh, Dr. Koch, I know that you mentioned that as a medical anthropologist, there had been concerns of yours uh, in your field about this very thing. Could you talk to us about that a little bit?
2: One thing that uh, one of the things that medical anthropologists do is look at biomedicine as a cultural system of knowledge. You know, we tend to not think. Of biomedicine as having its own cultural ideas and values because we associate it with science which is seemed to be objective and value-free but when you when you look very closely at the practice of medicine at how people are trained um, at how disease is discussed in a way that often just kind of reduces it to biology um, or that emphasizes the role of you know treating someone with a medicine rather than addressing the social conditions that make someone more or less likely to be sick, mm. um, you, you really sort of see the importance of, of getting that bigger
0: picture. Yeah, I'm curious if the two of you see, uh, I mean clearly this is a positive movement uh, is what I'm hearing, but um, do you think that it's going to make a, a major difference in the years to come as far as uh, medicine, medical anthropology, these scientific fields go uh, more of an embrace of the humanities we'll say?
2: I think there's potential if we're seeing these kinds of changes in medical education. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing that we're seeing, there's going to be a major shift on the MCAT exam, which is like the GRE, but if you want to go to medical school, there's now um, a qualitative social science writing component. Mm -hmm. Um, More and more students in going to school for medicine are also required to take medical anthropology courses so that they can understand the significance of things like culture, social transformations, political economic forces, um, on not only what makes people healthy or not healthy, but the things about our daily lives that kind of um, influence the decisions we make about our health. Mm -hmm. I think there's potential.
1: Yeah, I'm hopeful, uh, as long as there's buy-in on the part of medical schools, and that's where it has to come from. I also think that it has great promise for helping disciplines um, cross boundaries you know we have this silo effect where discipline when you in your discipline you stay in that you don't talk to people outside of it and I think that's very harmful and if we could you know get better about relating to each other we could actually find that we have things to offer each other
0: mm-hmm. This is actually pretty interesting that this comes up because, uh, Dr. Kotsch, you're one of the co-directors of the new HSP major Mm -hmm. uh, health societies and populations. Mm -hmm. And um, that's definitely more of a, I I would say from what research I've done, uh, definitely more of a humanist approach to medicine, to health, to all of these topics. I think that... um, it's definitely interesting that this is opening up at UK at an undergraduate level now, just as we're uh, discussing these things and the importance on higher levels. So to focus on that, really open to both of you here, uh, what kind of changes do you think could be made for the positive, we'll stick on that, um, offering this kind of education to you know, 18, 19 year olds?
2: Well, it's the major is a, a liberal arts approach to studying um, health and specifically um, health inequalities. Mm-hmm. Um, so the uneven distribution of illness and access to resources in relation to things like sexuality, gender, race, class, immigrant status, things mm-hmm. like that. And so I think it can offer um, students who will get both qualitative and quantitative, methodological training and and research practice, hopefully, a much more nuanced way of thinking about illness, about the healthcare system, how one's social status or position in a variety of ways, um, like I said before, not only influences, you know, whether or not they're more or less likely to become sick, Mm. um, but how the decisions that people make that influence their health are are not sort of just individualist, irresponsible decisions and things like that, but they're they're really structured by society and, and by social institutions and inequalities. So I think it can just give people a more nuanced way of thinking about those things, and then they can develop and use those skills in a whole range of potential career options.
1: Adding to that, the liberal arts liberal arts disciplines offer a different way of thinking mm-hmm. that is much more process oriented. <laughs> and so writing for example is a good way to think about something and explore all the different angles of it and it Mm -hmm. can be a safe way to play with ideas that you don't know much about yet so I think it's very good for producing a more or offering a more well-rounded
2: education to students
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: yeah and I mean it's you know we've designed the major to be truly interdisciplinary at heart um, which I think is another really unique and important aspect to it. So, you know, students are not only going to take courses in medical anthropology and medical sociology, um, but we're really asking and requiring of them to get training in statistics to get, you know, some biology under their belts, but also to take classes um, in history. You know, I would love to have a, an arts and epidemics class on the option of things for students to take. So you need a really interdisciplinary approach to health, I think, in today's world because mm-hmm. The things that influence one's well being in society themselves are so multifaceted.
0: Making connections on Ox. Hours. Yeah, Maybe absolutely. this can work out Maybe yeah, exactly. there can be an HSP, W R D working Come, together. Yeah. yeah. I Rewind. mean, and there
2: there is and there's a writing component that's required of students as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're really sort of thinking in terms of both breadth but also depth and, and focus.
0: Mm. A quick question. Would you say that, you know, in the coming years, the, the HSP program definitely ha- is going to be looking f- to add more faculty, to add more classes and things?
2: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We're always looking um, to add, well, not I don't know if we're always looking because this is our first semester, right. but, um, you know, we definitely have um, a long view in mind, and, I you know, I think that at the start of every new year, we'll be seeing what new faculty have arrived on campus and in the college mm-hmm. who you might be able to invite or looking for new courses. We don't yet have an independent study or an uh, internship class, so we're going to be adding those so that mm-hmm. students can get practical experience. One course that I would love to see in the future, which I think would work best as uh, something that could even be team taught, is a, a class specifically looking at health and health inequalities in Kentucky and in in the region Mm. in Appalachia so Mm -hmm. um, yeah we're we're flexible
0: (laughs) you know not to not to get too far down into the HSP rabbit hole but Mm -hmm. also because it is so relevant what we're talking about here with this you know I'm going to keep using the word humane whether that's correct or not but this more humane approach to health just just looking at the faculty list for that there's so there's such a wide breadth of research interests and things that the the faculty that are working with the major and the minor are covering. I mean, if I remember correctly, there's stuff like Appalachian studies, mapping, uh, geography, just all over the place, quite Mm -hmm. frankly. and I'm curious to hear what kind of purpose do both of you see, honestly? This huge, huge array of research and topics being covered, not only at HSP, but at UK in general, for Mm -hmm. this humane approach. What kind of benefits do you see that having, maybe drawbacks? Just open discussion, honestly. So we'll be right back with what I'm sure will be great answers to that very rambly question uh, after this. Uh, Before the break, I had a moment where I tried (laughs) to ask a very general question. Uh, And that question basically boiled down to, uh, outside of just the HSP major, UK is definitely kind of moving into this embrace of this more humane approach to health, I would Mm -hmm. say. What kind of pluses and minuses, pros and cons, do you guys see to our university's approach to this as it stands, or maybe where it will be going, uh, if you can talk on that?
2: One thing that I would like to see from this major, and, you know, hopefully it's flourishing is, you know, we we want to train students to be able to work nationally and internationally, but I think it's really important, um, especially given the university's history as a land-grant institution, Mm -hmm. um, to use this as an opportunity to perhaps um, work on health issues, as I said, in Kentucky and in the region. So I think that that is one um, potential tremendous benefit and it goes back to something that I said earlier you know disease illness um, these aren't biological purely biological phenomena Um, it's disease is profoundly social it's political it's cultural Mm. um, and if you are really going to improve the health of the population be that um, you know the students in a particular dormitory or the population of an entire state um, you have to have a much more multifaceted approach. So I think that's one of the biggest um, potential benefits. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, another benefit I think that ties into this is this is maybe a generalization, but I, I tend to see students who come in imagining only maybe three professional tracks that they could go into. They could become an engineer, they could go into law, or they could be pre-med. Mm-hmm. So this is anecdotal. This is what I kind of feel like is happening with a lot of freshmen. But in 2011, 40% of our freshmen declared as biology majors. They don't stay as biology majors. Mm. I think one byproduct of that is, at first at least, only valuing the things that you think will get you into this career. And that does two things. It makes you maybe devalue the other things. So. If you really value science classes and you're good at that, you might diminish things that are harder that you don't see as practical for where you're going in your major. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of a problem if you teach a humanities class, because instantly you've got resistance with your students. That's a problem with valuing your whole education, too. Because what happens next is a bunch of these students don't end up majoring in biology, or they think the only way they can do this is to become a doctor or a nurse. And if they don't want to do those tracks, they don't really think about the wide range of other careers that are connected to the health field. Mm -hmm. I think if you were open to more knowledge from different places and valued it for its own sake, Mm -hmm. um, you might also be open to more possibilities once once your plan A falls through. You might be able to more easily make a plan B. Mm And this ties into just trying to get people to stay all the way through and graduate from U of K. Mm -hmm. So then they can make these changes.
2: Yeah. 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 And, you know, I didn't mean to cut you off, but we're, you know, we're really sort of envisioning this as a great double major for students mm -hmm. who want to go that route. So Mm -hmm. um, whether or not someone goes pre med. But the program is really designed, including the curriculum requirements and options, to help people, um, you know, Go towards a whole range of professions related to health. Towards again, really practical, qualitative, and quantitative skills. Um, mm-hmm. So philosophically, it's a great idea, but it's really, really geared as a as a practical approach. And health is one of the biggest career growth industries in the country today. So um, you know, we're sort of seeing it as a response to what's actually happening in reality.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's definitely great that UK is embracing this idea of different approaches to the same kind of career paths Mm -hmm. or even opening up new offshoots off Mm -hmm. these old beaten career paths honestly Mm -hmm. i mean it's kind of like the the wrd english split yeah they're two amazingly different but still equally relevant ways of looking at what is very much similar kind of path
1: absolutely absolutely ideally um they complement each other Mm -hmm. these ways of looking for example at literature You know, you can look at literature for its own aesthetic values, or you can look at it for what it actually might do to generate social change. Mm -hmm. Either way, it's still useful and interesting, Mm -hmm. I think.
0: During the break and before the show, just full disclosure, we had (laughs) talked a bit about uh, a common area of research for the both of you. Uh, on a similar topic from two different angles, which I think works beautifully with what we're talking about (laughs) right now. Uh, And that is the topic of tuberculosis. We've been playing a couple of songs uh, featuring the topic in very, very sad ways. Yes, Uh, But Dr. Rogers Carpenter, you did some work with uh, TB to prepare for the art and epidemics class Mm -hmm. with your rhetoric on disease. Mm -hmm. Dr. Koch, you've studied the disease itself in Georgia uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I'm just wondering if um, we can talk about this one topic from two different angles and kind of see where we mesh and what we can learn.
1: Absolutely. When I investigated this, I was interested in literary responses and um, visual art responses to TB. And what I discovered, and it's pretty common knowledge, is that there's a visual and literary aesthetic to TB. Victims often have pallor, they might have sunken eyes, they might seem a little disconnected from their surroundings at the moment, right? Um, Sometimes they are a little feverish and sweaty. Um, So all of this stuff was given a sort of cultural value um, the power during the Victorian era and the Romantic era was considered beautiful, as was the otherworldliness. So poets and writers who had TB were thought to be burning out early, using all of their energy at once, hmm. um, and then dying young. And this is very—we ro- feel right now, I think, that this is a very romantic ideal. You know, that like even in recent history, James Dean, right, dying young, hmm. being forever young hmm. and beautiful. This is um, as as the century progresses and a greater understanding of TB evolves connections with it change so um, it becomes associated over time with fallen women because of the sweat right and the sort of uh, off-focus appearance you know that's a passionate woman perhaps someone who's a lot likes sex heaven forbid and so there are there are heroines who exemplify this like in La Boheme um, Mimi in La Boheme you know there's these fallen women and then even later, when we get to, say, the turn of the century into 1900, it becomes much more of a, a associated with poverty and kind of down-and-outers, and, outers, and that's, that's more like the song we just heard of Jimmy Rogers, the TB blues. I did bring in a, a very short list of famous people that the listeners might recognize mm-hmm. who died of TB. Um, <laughs> this is a depressing <laughs> conversation. <laughs> um, the Bronte sisters, right? Um, Henry David Thoreau. Anton Chekhov, Dashiell Hammett of Maltese Falcon fame, Franz Kafka, and the one I really wanted to bring up because this is who everyone brings up is John Keats. Mm. John Keats was a British poet, romantic poet. He was born in 1795 and died in 1821, so he was young, 26 years old. Um, During his treatment, there was a brief time when he thought he was getting better. He had been put on a red meat and red wine everyday diet. And I suspect his lungs had some hemorrhaging going on, and this offset the blood loss. Mm. So he thought he was getting better, but then he relapsed. And I think he went to Italy after that. And he was treated by bloodletting, which is totally, you know, so they they used to do bloodletting just as a standard practice, Mm. and they would cut and take blood out of your arms. So he was already losing blood and lost blood out of his arms and was put on this diet called a dainty diet, which was like an anchovy in a little bowl of porridge every day, something like this. And then he died soon after that, oh. which isn't surprising. He would never mention his disease directly in his work because it was associated with um, aberrant behaviors—quote, aberrant behaviors such as masturbation and insanity—but it comes out in his poetry, and so. I thought I would read a little bit of Ode to a Nightingale, which is one of his most famous poems. It's, this is the part, this is what I call the really deathy part. So I'm going to read just one stanza of this. Um, and you can hear, you can kind of hear how he's feeling. This is towards the end of the poem. He says, Darkling, I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death. Called him soft names in many amused rhyme To take into the air my quiet breath Now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain. While thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such ecstasy, still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. A lot of death references in here. I think it's clear that he's thinking about his mortality, even if he's not speaking directly about it. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, definitely want to talk about that and get to the science side, but first we're going to take a real quick break, and we'll be back on Office Hours. Uh, Before the break, we had uh, talked to, uh, specifically, Dr. Catherine Rogers Carpenter had spoken with us about uh, John Keats and a number of other artists that have suffered from these terrible diseases, namely tuberculosis. (laughs) The idea of burning out rather than fading away, and all this creative energy kind of like Burning out, for lack of a better term, uh, all at once, and it being very strange and yet fascinating kind of cultural phenomena. Now, I'm very curious to uh, hear from Dr. Aaron Koch, who has studied the disease itself, just just to learn more about actual tuberculosis and the way it affects people. Mm
2: -hmm. The microbe that causes tuberculosis, or that's involved with tuberculosis, I would argue that society and social forces cause the disease. Um, Um, and things like poverty um, is airborne so it travels by air Um, it has a capacity for staying alive in the air for a long time Mm -hmm. Um, that's one of the reasons why um, you know from the industrial era the rise of of large factories Mm -hmm. um, a lot of populations had tuberculosis but also you see high rates of TB in places like prisons refugee camps homeless shelters, things like that. It's not because of the kinds of people who are there, it's because the microbe has this capacity um, to spread through the air and stay alive um, for a long time, especially if there's no UV lights or anything like that, or sunshine. It can affect multiple organs or parts of the body, um, but the primary one is is pulmonary tuberculosis, which Mm -hmm. creates cavities in the lungs and basically eats away at them. One of the biggest problems with tuberculosis today is actually latent tuberculosis. So you can be infected, um, and this is you know something that a lot of people have misconce- misconceptions about. You can be infected with the microbe um, and never, ever actually become actively sick. It can stay dormant in your lungs for uh, long amounts of time. It can hide itself from the human immune system. And then if something happens to you and your immunity becomes compromised, you can develop the disease and become actively sick and um
0: would you be willing to talk to us a bit about the specifics of your research on the subject
2: yeah absolutely so i uh conducted research in georgia the country georgia as you said looking at how the collapse of the soviet union affected um, their healthcare system and its demise mm-hmm. um and when I was a graduate student and I was you know still trying to hone in on a more specific topic, I got connected to some uh, American doctors who had been doing some consulting work in, in the former Soviet Union and in Georgia specifically, trying to offer advice and services on how to kind of rebuild. Um, a a Georgian healthcare system at the national level. And in talking with these doctors, tuberculosis was a disease that came up and up again. They said, you know, if you really want to look at one of the most pressing health issues, it's TB. It's in the prisons. It's in um, the displaced populations. Georgia has a large population of people displaced by civil war. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's in the general population. So that's kind of... You know experts on the ground telling me that it was important was how I got interested in it. And then once I started reading about tuberculosis, including um, its history and its role in you know the arts and popular imagination, I just became fascinated uh, with the disease. Catherine and I were actually talking earlier before we came inside about how infectious diseases are really fascinating ways for thinking about all kinds of things about society and history mm-hmm. and social change. Um, so it's it's you know really from that vantage point that mm-hmm. I became a little bit obsessed with TV <laughs> yeah
1: there's a quote I would like to share with you I may misquote it but it's from Susan sonheg 's illness as metaphor mm-hmm. so this is a story about the AIDS epidemic mm-hmm. but she begins the book and she says we are all born everyone born um, has dual citizenship in the kingdom of the healthy and the kingdom of the ill and I think s- this is a universal thing, you can easily become, you can easily move from one spot to the other. And the fact that she ties the word citizenship into it shows that there's always sort of a political or power element to mm-hmm. how sick you get, mm-hmm. whether you live or not, what kind of health care you have access to. It, there's always, there's always a, a political element to that, even when we don't think there is mm-hmm. yet.
2: Yeah. And bouncing off of that, um, this is one of the things that I, I looked at a lot in my my TB project in Georgia. There's also um, a political aspect to the production of medical and scientific knowledge itself. Yeah. So my project was actually uh, an anthropological study of the implementation of a global health protocol that's been heavily standardized. It's called DOTS and it's it's comes originally out of the World Health Organization. Um, if you are a national TB program or health program and you want to get funding to improve your TB services, you have to basically use this one protocol. And um, so what I was looking at was how uh, the cultural values and practices embedded within the protocol, but kind of, again, hidden by this, this idea that biomedicine is objective, clashed with a very, very rich and interesting history and, and sort of cultural practices of, of medicine and TB control in Georgia um, so my work was not among patients as much as it was with uh, physicians, nurses, people working in the tuberculosis laboratory that kind of thing, so sort of looking at changes in the production of knowledge and how that itself is also ex- extremely political especially in the the world of contemporary global health.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's really incredible this discussion of the, um, the connection between the political and the, mm-hmm. and the societal between the dealings of health. You know I wouldn't mm-hmm. just coming in off the street I wouldn't necessarily make that connection uh, very quickly at Mm -hmm. least (laughs) Um, you know we're we're coming short on time here but I I, before we have to go unfortunately Mm I, I just wonder if either one of you, or both of you, hopefully, have some final thoughts on uh, what we've discussed today. Just, I mean, we've discussed so much that that might seem like a crazy question, <laughs> but uh, maybe just on this uh, connection mm-hmm. uh, between the political and health, or you, you know, this humane approach—really, mm-hmm. anything.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, one of the questions that you had had sent to me that might have come up was you know, not only what is medical anthropology, but what is your favorite thing about being a medical anthropologist? Mm -hmm. Um, So medical anthropology is just the, you know, in the broadest sense, the cultural study of disease and illness, and it can be from any perspective and on any topic. Um, But one of my favorite things, and I really am just so passionate about medical anthropology, I love it, is specifically um, this way of looking at things like health and illness as always profoundly social, political, um, you know embedded within power relationships and social institutions. Um, one of the things that anthropologists, at least contemporary medical anthropologists do, is not only emphasize the cultural aspects, mm-hmm. but also um, caution against using cultural differences as an explanation for why some populations are more or less likely to be sick. Um, And I think that's one thing that's sort of been in the background of what we've talked about today. Rather than just saying, oh, it's because of cultural differences, you actually look at um, the situation on the ground and take that very complex political, economic, social, institutional picture into Mm -hmm. consideration. So um, I don't know. That's one thing that I've sort of taken away from today, thinking about it not only as a social scientist, but also how that, that comes out in the arts and in medical education now increasingly.
1: I'd like to think that work in the medical humanities, humanities courses, can give voices to people when they might not have a voice, which is this relationship mm-hmm. to this unequal relationship. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't just mean patients. although I feel like when I look at a group of students I know one day most of them will be a patient and they'll have to question perhaps what their physician says, but it, I also like to think it gives a voice to the physician too. Or to the nurse, too, or mm-hmm. to the the future tech, or whoever, mm-hmm. so that so that we can approach a more um, a more dynamic, I guess, relationship mm-hmm. in which everyone says what they're thinking, and mm-hmm. then the the result is better health.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've run out of time for today, but I want to thank you both uh, for coming on the show again. It has been phenomenal. Uh, you've been listening to Office Hours with our guests, doctors Catherine Rogers Carpenter and Aaron Koch. And uh, join us again next week. Same bat time, same bat channel.
2: Office Hours is produced in cooperation with WRFL and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. This broadcast theme song is Sandu, performed by Hugo Drupi contini and provided by the Free Music Archive.